This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life and this life is in his son. He that has the son has life and he that has not the son of God has not life. If you remember, maybe, back in September when we began this series, we actually started learning about the first letter of John near the end of the letter. We, we started, and I, I contend that it, it's still true, that the, the key verse in understanding John's purpose in writing this letter is actually chapter 5, verse 13. And though we're not going to get quite there today, we're going to stop short of it. Look at what it says. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. You can know. John's goal in this letter is to write to people who already have faith in Jesus, who are already saved, and assure them that they can know their salvation is certain, that eternal life is theirs. This kind of knowledge, this kind of assurance is the nature of faith. One of the arguments that gets made nowadays against Christianity is that Christianity demands blind faith. It does not. It would be a strange religion indeed if it said that God created you with an intellect, with the ability to be capable of deep thinking and then demands that you shut off that intellect in order to have any kind of relationship with him because thinking would just get in your way. What a strange religion that would be. Blind faith is a call to believe Jesus without evidence, but true faith is a call to believe Jesus because of the evidence. God's word does not call us to blind faith. It calls us to reasonable faith. And our text this morning as John leads up to that statement of purpose in verse 13, he points out several witnesses in favor of faith. In fact, y'all who like to write in your Bible need to get your pens or pencils ready. The theme of our text in verses 6 through 12 is evident through John's repetition of the same word multiple times. Starting in verse 6 and through verse 12, John uses some form of the Greek word martyrio a total of 10 times. If you want to make a note of them, here they are. In verse 6, it says the Spirit bears witness. That's the word. 
In verse seven, it says there are three that bear record. It's the same word again. In verse eight, bear witness appears again. In verse nine, you'll find it four times. You'll find the word witness, 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 and testified. All four are the same word. And verse 10 has two more. The first one is witness again, but the second one is the word record. And in verse 11, record is there again. This word, martyrio, if it sounds familiar to you, it's because it was part of our text earlier this morning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, where it says Jesus is the faithful witness. There we said it meant Jesus was a, a faithful witness even to death. In 1 John 5, we'll see the context speaks to the faithful witness of Jesus' death. But John also intends it in the more basic sense of uh, testimony or um, witnessing. For several reasons, these verses are probably the most difficult passage of 1 John but the ultimate spirit-intended meaning of the text should be perfectly clear. Christians are not called to blind faith. We're called to a reasonable faith based on the evidence available, the witnesses, the record, the, the testimony. As we work through these verses, I want you to see three confirmations for Christ. First, the confirmation of the Son's ministry in verse 6, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, instead of jumping to the obvious question of what does John mean by water and blood, don't skip over the first words of verse 6. This is he that came. Those are not just filler words. John intends something by them. This is connecting Jesus to the messianic promises of the Old Testament. We see this little phrase show up in the Gospels as an expression of what the, the Jewish mind was on how God would, would fulfill his promises. So, for example, at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the people saw him as their, their hope of the Messiah, and they started shouting, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes as king of Israel. John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. But at the end of his life, as he was sitting in prison, John began to express doubts. And he wanted confirmation from Jesus. So he sent a couple of followers to Jesus to ask, Are you he that comes or should we look for someone else? This Jewish expression, he who comes, was the coming of the Messiah. They wanted him and awaited him to bring God's deliverance. So when John expresses this in his letter, his idea here is stop waiting. Jesus is not he who is coming. Jesus is he that came, he says. Not just by Water, but by blood. Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Now, how is it that they could know that the Messiah had come? Well, 
the way they could know is through the, the documentation of multiple fulfilled prophecies which gave testimony of him. The ministry of God the Son is confirmation of our faith. So let's wrestle with these words where John says he came by water and blood for a couple of minutes because several suggestions have been made about what John means by these terms. Some say that it means the physical birth, the water, and the spiritual existence, the blood of Jesus. Some say this is a reference to the the water and blood that flowed out of Jesus' side when the Roman soldier pierced him with a spear on the cross. Many Protestant groups argue that this water and blood is a reference to baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is closer to being right, but it's still, I don't think, right. What I'm going to tell you is when we look and we think about the context a bit, it is virtually certain that when John says water, he's talking about the baptism of Jesus. And when he talks about blood, he's referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I'm going to tax your memory for a moment because earlier on in our study of 1 John, we talked about a man that we know from history at this time, a guy named Serenthus. And Serenthus was almost certainly one of the the false teachers that were plaguing the believers that John's writing this letter to. Serenthus argued that Jesus was just a man like any other man, and that when he was baptized, the Spirit of God came on him and made him special, but then the Spirit of God abandoned him just before he was crucified. It seems like that's what John is addressing here. The influence of Serenthus had spread through this bizarre teaching through the region. And in response, John's reminding his readers that the baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus are confirmations that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. This makes the most sense out of the text. As John stresses when you read verse 6, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus the Messiah. Not by water only, but by water and blood. John's trying to make very clear that the Jesus who was crucified and bleeding on the cross was the very same Messiah who was baptized three years before that. So that means that the baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus are both confirmations that he's the Messiah. Now we can go back to the Gospels and we could see this. John the Baptist was told by God that you'll be able to identify the Messiah when you see the Holy Spirit on him. And he saw that at the baptism of Jesus. In John 1, 32, John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode on him and I bear record. Same word, by the way, materio. I bore record that this is the Son of God. We also have other witnesses of the same thing. When Jesus was baptized, they heard the voice of God the Father boom down from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So what are we to believe about Jesus based on his baptism? We see the Holy Spirit recognizing him there. When we hear the voice of the Father say, this is my son, what we're to believe and understand is this is 
the Messiah Savior. This is, as John says in our text, even Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. I know there are a lot of people who are confused about why Jesus would be baptized. After all, you know, they, they essentially said, well, why would Jesus even need to be baptized? Jesus never sinned. And of course, the answer is that baptism doesn't wash away sins. Only faith in Jesus does that. But by being baptized, Jesus identified himself with the very sinners he came to save. And so if we wanted to be consistent we wouldn't just ask, well, why was Jesus baptized if, we had no, if he had no sin? We would also have to go forward and say, why was Jesus crucified when he had no sin? Right? And the answer is obvious. It was for us. He was identifying with us. Now, not only does the water, the baptism of Jesus give testimony and support of faith in him. John adds in verse six that the blood, the crucifixion of Jesus gives testimony. It is confirmation that he is the Messiah and savior. We see a lot of evidence at the crucifixion. He was put on trial. He was declared innocent and yet he was executed anyway. The sky went dark from noon to three in the afternoon. The massive veil of the temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked, rocks broke apart. Some dead saints rose from the grave. When Jesus should have hardly been able to breathe, he shouted out, it is finished. He then died without the permission of the Roman soldiers who were executing him. You know those soldiers were experts in carrying out crucifixion. They would keep people alive as long as they wanted to keep them alive and suffering. The death of Jesus was so remarkable in so many ways by so many evident signs that a pagan Roman soldier at the base of the cross finally looked up in astonishment and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There is a stunning amount of testimony and evidence to the person and work of Jesus. And the reason that people reject him and the reason why no doubt some people here this morning reject him is not because the evidence is insufficient. It's because you know to accept the evidence means that he truly is the son of God and he has the authority to make a claim about your life. Your unwillingness to accept the facts does not change the facts. The ministry of Jesus from beginning to end, from his baptism to his crucifixion, is testimony confirming he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the Savior of sinners. Second, see the confirmation of the Spirit's guidance. Toward the end of verse 6, John says, and it's the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Okay, let me, let me just deal with the controversy about verse 7 
just so that we can be done with it. Depending on what translation you're reading, you might not have verse 7, which says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Or maybe you've got a study Bible that makes a note saying that that phrase isn't found in a majority of manuscripts. This is one of those variants that we talked about in our History of the Bible series, which means that not all manuscripts read exactly the same. So with the possible exception of the very end of Mark's gospel, this might be the biggest battleground when it comes to folks wanting to argue about these things. I don't argue it. And here's why. Let me show you. Verse 7 is a statement about the Trinity, right? That God is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And some want to take the position that this got added in order to support the doctrine of the Trinity. And others want to argue, well, this got removed by people who want to do away with the doctrine of the Trinity. But most of the folks who are arguing about this on either side ignore that the entire passage before and after verse 7 is Trinitarian in nature. Look at verse 6. Jesus Christ, he is the Son of God. He's the Messiah who came. At the end of verse 6, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Son. At the end of verse 9, God has testified of his Son, that is, God the Father has borne testimony, born witness of God the Son. You cannot separate Father, Son, and Spirit from this text as a whole. It's impossible. That's why I've pointed out a couple of weeks ago that back a little ways in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, it says God has given us his Spirit and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to save the world, right? This, this whole letter is Trinitarian in nature, And so really, there's nothing to be offended about in verse 7. If you want to know more about the manuscript variants and the controversy and such stuff, come talk to me. I'll be glad to talk about it with you. But otherwise, just understand, what verse 7 says is absolutely true. It is perfectly correct. God the Father, the Word that is Jesus, God the Son, And the Holy Spirit are three in one and all bear record individually and collectively that Jesus is the Messiah. Now John's specific purpose in this section is to point to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. You see that at the end of verse 6. It's the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit of God has borne witness to salvation through Jesus The Spirit of God did this throughout the Gospels, even beginning before Jesus was born. The the Spirit revealed to John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, about the coming of the Messiah. The Spirit descended visibly on Jesus at his baptism. Immediately after that, it says, the Spirit is what led him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. When Jesus came out of the wilderness, he enters into the synagogue at Nazareth and he opens the scroll of Isaiah for public reading and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus promised that Holy Spirit's influence would continue on his disciples. He called them the the spirit of truth, which is where John gets the title in verse 6. And that spirit fell on the Lord's church at Pentecost, recognizing that the assembly of believers 
are the saints of God. The, the Holy Spirit of God has testified in numerous ways to the authenticity of Jesus as Messiah and Savior. The Holy Spirit testified through inspiration, right? He moved the apostolic witnesses to write and record the gospel story, the, the virgin birth, the miraculous signs, the perfect life, the righteous teaching, the sacrificial death, the glorious resurrection of Jesus. So every word you read in scripture is a witness of the Holy Spirit pointing you to the plan and purpose of God through salvation in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies by bringing people to life and drawing them to faith in Jesus. Then the Spirit indwells believers. As Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit itself bears witness, martyrio again, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. By any legal standard, what John has described just in verse 6 is enough evidence to prove the case for Christ. I think that's what he means in verse 8. By the the Old Testament standard, a single witness is not enough to confirm anything in a legal sense. It was commanded in the Old Testament. You have to have at least two, preferably three witnesses in order to establish the truth. That's, That's what's required for sufficient evidence. But John's saying in verse 8, The spirit and the water and the blood are sufficient witnesses in that the three of them are in agreement. If you remember at the trials of Jesus, they brought in false witnesses against him. And those false witnesses not only lied about him, but they lied in ways that the witnesses themselves didn't agree with each other. Their own witnesses were in contradiction. They couldn't get their lies straight. But now John is saying these witnesses of the spirit and the water and the blood are in perfect agreement. It's not like the the baptism of Jesus teaches one truth and the crucifixion teaches something else and that the Holy Spirit leads us to believe some third position. All three point to a singular unified truth that Jesus is the son of God and the savior of sinners. They, as he says at the end of verse 8, these three agree in one. They all point to the same truth. And so verse 8 is kind of like this temporary conclusion, right? These three witnesses, that's what's required. And they agree, but kind of like a TV commercial that says, but wait, there's more. John keeps going. Saying that's all that's necessary, but there's more available. We also have the witness of, or the confirmation of the Father's plan in verses 9 through 11. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record God gave his Son. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life and this life is in his son. John's using a classical form of argument in verse nine. This form of argument is referred to as an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if you're willing to accept the testimony of men, 
which is of much less value because people, sometimes we just don't know, and other times people will just outright lie to you. He says, if you're willing to accept the lesser witness of men, you know the witness of God is greater. He knows all things, and all things he speaks are true. So now it's as if John bravely calls God the Father to the witness stand and asks for divine testimony in regard to Jesus. Although in truth, the way he's written this is to tell us the testimony has already been given. You can see it in past tense in verse 9. This is, present tense, the witness of God, which he has, past tense, testified of his Son. The testimony of God the Father has already been recorded, and it's still true today. John seems to be saying that the the totality of what has been revealed in Scripture is the testimony of God the Father concerning the Son. Right? God promised a, a seed of the woman who would come and crush Satan's head. And Jesus has done that. God promised a descendant of Abraham who would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And Jesus has done that. God promised Israel a prophet like Moses who would come speaking God's law in righteousness. And Jesus has done that. God promised David a future king who would establish his throne. And that's, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. God promised through Isaiah a Messiah servant who would bear our sins, bringing his people to salvation through his suffering. Jesus has done that. Jesus has already fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies and we expect his return is going to fulfill the rest of them. If you need evidence of Jesus as Savior, there is evidence aplenty. Calculating the chances that Jesus would have fulfilled those prophecies is virtually impossible. There's one man who famously attempted it with the help of several hundred math students, and they came up with the number of one in one with 17 zeros behind it. But that was only for the chances of Jesus fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies. What about the hundreds and hundreds of others that he's fulfilled? If you're familiar with Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case for Christ, he said this, although he said it in another book. He said, I imagined the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square. Every bit of dry land on the planet covered with this white tile, with the bottom of just one tile painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around the seven continents. He would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up a piece of tile. What are the odds that it would be the one whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. Y'all, I don't know if that is mathematically precise. It is beyond my ability to calculate. I just know the evidence for Jesus is also beyond my ability to comprehend. It's enough. Any person walking this earth who says that they need more evidence, more testimony of Jesus in truth would not accept any amount of evidence. It's already overwhelming. 
it's enough. To deny this evidence, John says in verse 10, is to contradict God. So listen to me. If you're sitting there this morning and you don't have faith in Jesus, you need to be clear about what that means about you. John says, he who does not believe God has made him a liar. You might think, oh, well, I haven't done that. But you have. Just as surely as if you were on a jury in a courtroom and you heard a witness's testimony and then ruled against them, what you would be saying is, I thought they were lying. Listen to John at the end of verse 10. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe the record, the testimony that God gave of his son. Failure to believe in Jesus for salvation is actually taking the position that God the Father has lied to us about his son. So John then simplifies this down to just the most basic statement. This is the testimony. This is the witness of the Father himself. Look at verse 11. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. The testimony of God the Father is that his plan and purpose is to grant everlasting life to sinners, and that life is available exclusively through Jesus the Son. That's the Father's testimony, which he has declared and revealed in in hundreds of different ways. But that's the essence of it. God gives eternal life, and that life is in his Son. This leads us to, finally, an inevitable conclusion in verse 12. He that has the Son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. Since salvation is the plan and gift of God, so so that it's not something that you can conjure up or create on your own, and since in God's plan, salvation, this everlasting life, is granted as a gift exclusively through Jesus the Son, The only hope you have is faith in Christ. This is evidence that calls for a verdict. There are only two possible options. John reduces his argument down to in verse 12. You trust God's word and you believe in Jesus and you have life or you're rejecting Jesus, you're calling God a liar and you do not have life. In our world today, agnosticism has become quite popular. Don't confuse it with atheism. Atheism says, I don't believe. But unlike atheism, agnosticism seems a little bit milder. It doesn't say, I don't believe, but agnosticism said, we don't know. We can't know. But here's John's letter saying, oh yeah, you can know. You can know. In fact, you have to know. Because while we detect some subtle nuance between atheism and agnosticism, right, between I don't believe or I don't know, the truth is there is no difference in the eternal consequences of those two positions. If you're sitting there as an atheist and you're saying I don't believe, 
you're calling God a liar and the Bible warns that you'll suffer his wrath in hell forever. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I don't think we can know, then you're rejecting the testimony of God. You're calling him a liar and the Bible warns that you will suffer his wrath in hell forever. There's no difference between those two positions. But John is pointing us to the truth. You can know. And if you have the Son, you have life. The testimony of Jesus' baptism tells us he's the Son of God, come to save sinners. The testimony of Jesus' crucifixion tells us he's the Son of God, come to save sinners. The testimony of the Holy Spirit tells us that he's the Son of God and he's come to save sinners. And the testimony of God the Father says Jesus is the Son of God and he's come to save sinners. You are not asked to have blind faith. You're called to evaluate the evidence, especially hearing the testimony of God himself. Is God true? Is God trustworthy? If he is, then Jesus is worthy of your trust. And by believing in him, you can know that you have eternal life.